Hey everybody, welcome back to the ABM Voice podcast. Thanks for joining. I'm excited to talk to Devs Porter from Fojex today. Fojex basically helps demystifies ABM and help implement and scale for companies of all sizes. Uh, Devs uh, talks a lot about B2B marketing, account-based marketing, account-based experiences. And today I wanted to spend some time with him and then basically go over these topics in detail and specifically they talk about two frameworks which I'm very excited to understand how they approach namely growth ABM and enterprise ABM. Davis welcome to the show. Arun thanks so much for having me I'm psyched to be here. Absolutely Davis. Davis let's just get started with a very quick introduction I know I've covered a little bit about what you do presently but uh, what has been your journey so far how did projects happen? Yeah, so a little bit about my background. I've been in ABM my entire career, have had the opportunity to launch scale and optimize programs across every different organization size, which has really made a strong impact on our view of ABM at ForgeX. So from your hypergrowth VC-backed startup, mid-sized enterprise organization with you know, 6,000 plus employees, and then all the way up to the massive 100K plus world's most renowned. And so seeing how your ABM framework differs across each of these was eye-opening for me. And that's a little bit about my background and how Forgex came about is we saw, and there still is a gap in the market for account based market research. And so we lean heavily on the research and then advisory side as well. But when you look at how ABM has innovated and modernized over the past five years, it's roughly stayed the same or no neutral source has really progressed the practice forwards. And so that is what we're all about in what we're working to do. Interesting, very interesting. Uh, how do you go about this advisory services that you have? Do you help in identifying, let's say, your potential clients on the basics of ABM? How do they get started and those sort of things? Or what, what kind of work goes into like, in the engagement? Yeah, so we've got a couple different options based off of where you are in your ABM journey. We've got our ABM incubator offering, which will help you go from zero to one on your program throughout the build phase. And and we're very much advisory versus execution. And then we also have our ABM amplifier package as well. So if you have your ABM program up and running and you're looking to optimize or you're looking to scale, we are the partner that can help get you there. And one thing that I'm really excited that we're going to be rolling out, again, given that we are a neutral market research firm, we are just about to roll out our ABM certifications, not only for practitioners and leaders, but also for agencies. Hmm, interesting. Uh, what does that certification involve? Is it for the practitioners within those organizations so they can know the 
the bits and bytes of ABM, is it, or anything more than that? Yeah, the, the ins and outs of ABM will walk you through and really enable you on how to effectively run growth ABM, enterprise ABM, and, you know, it will also include what are proprietary, not only frameworks, but templates that you can take mm. back to your organization. And mm. we'll really go in depth along how you can build a world-class ABM program that scales. And then at the end, you have to pass our certification exam so that, you know, not, not anybody can just walk through and, and take the templates and then run and try to do it. Like we, we want to make sure that if you are Forge X certified, you are credible and, and did tangibly take away the learnings that we shared. Got it. Makes sense. So let's just dive into the frameworks. And I'm, um, I think based on the conversation, you're really excited to share about the differences and what goes in right between these two frameworks and, and also like why two types of frameworks, right? So let's just dive in, like help us understand what's growth ABM, what is enterprise ABM. Yeah, so the way in which these came about, I think that that context will be really helpful because the frameworks were not something that we just came up with one day and said, oh, this is a new way to do ABM. Here, here you go, market, like try to adopt it and we'll see what happens. We, The way that these were derived was after going from it, it, the sequential order in, in my background was going from that massive, massive organization to that small VC-backed startup, thinking about how the ABM approach differs was something that I really had to lean into. And so this completely opened my eyes. And then I started looking around the market and saying, how are these smaller organizations effectively running their ABM programs? And through dozens of dozens of conversations, that is where started to pick up on these patterns and really learn that a lot of these orgs that are on the smaller side are learning how to run ABM through the uh, ABM platforms. So they'll look at all of the things that they're putting out. And although great frameworks, they're not from a neutral source and it's a bit muddy. And so you've got the smaller orgs running ABM in one capacity. You've got the larger orgs running ABM in another capacity. And then what was really interesting is once we kind of put down these two different ways that both of these organization sizes are running ABM on paper. Mm. Then we started having conversations with the larger orgs and they were all saying, wait a second, we are running essentially what these smaller orgs are doing, but it's more on the demand gen side. And so mm. and it was like, wait a second, uh, this is, this is massive. And this is how ABM is being practiced in the modern day versus the triangle method, which it was great to begin with, but now is outdated. And so what these two frameworks consist of is you've got starting with growth ABM first. Yep. Imagine your total addressable market 
And then you take that total addressable market and you narrow it down to your target account universe. Who are the target accounts that we want to go after? And this would be, you're on the hook for, you know, 50, hundreds, thousands of accounts. And you're taking that account coverage and you're going to put it in three distinct tiers. So first you've got your tier one that has the smallest amount of accounts. It's the most strategic for your go-to-market. They have the highest level of tactical eligibility when it comes to the campaigns. They have the greatest personalization, depth, and scope when it comes to your tactics. So that's tier one. Then you've got tier two, which has a medium level of accounts. And the difference between the tier one and tier two is that in tier one, or in tier two, sorry, you've got less personalization, you have less tactical eligibility. So to give an example here, maybe there is a VIP executive dinner and only tier one accounts are eligible for that type of tactic. So you've got tier one, tier two, and then tier three is where all of the remaining accounts sit. And so it's got the largest number and then the tactical eligibility and personalization are at the lowest degree or what I like to call the scale, right? Everything has to scale across the remaining accounts. And so that is growth ABM. The majority of smaller organizations run this and start their ABM journey in this capacity. And the reason behind that is they don't have the luxury and the ability, and it doesn't make sense from a go-to-market standpoint, to run a true and pure one-to-one or one-to-few play, which one-to-few meaning 25 accounts or less in the cluster. And that's what we call enterprise ABM. So you can't do that because yes. it, you know it would make zero sense unless you're ACV is so high and you really, really have a account that you completely believe is going to close and your business is, is hinging upon it. That's when you could run a one-to-one yeah. at the smaller organization. But when you look at the market, the majority is running this growth ABM. And so where sure. enterprise ABM, which is that next framework sits, is it's you're running one-to-one or one to few, again, one to few being 25 accounts or less. And the difference is, imagine you're one to one, it's a nine, 12, 18 month long campaign specific for that one account. So almost imagine every tactic, everything in your campaign plan, your messaging, your target personas, it is all centered around one account. And usually in these larger organizations, if they're purely running enterprise ABM and they're running that one-to-one -one motion, you'll see three to five accounts per practitioner. And so you're getting really, really targeted. Um, and an interesting thing that we've seen within the market as well is after having some conversations with ABM leaders in these mass, massive organizations, I was walking them, them through, hey, this is how we're seeing smaller orgs do it with the growth ABM approach. They were all looking at me and saying, no, 
we're actually running this in some capacity within our demand gen, or we're just starting and working to stand up a growth ABM motion. And what they're doing is within, again, if you remember like the growth ABM, you've got those three different tiers. What they're doing is they're pulling their enterprise ABM accounts from the tier one and tier two mm -hmm. accounts. So it's almost this grand natural flow of a holistic account-based approach where your go-to-market teams are so aligned because you've got, first off, all of the accounts that you want to go after. They all fall into the different tiers within Growth ABM. And then for those really okay. high, t high ACV accounts where it makes sense, they're running Enterprise ABM, that pure one-to-one -one or one-to-few. Yeah. Very interesting. So you stack in case you're a large organization, then you have growth X, oh, sorry, growth uh, ABM as a, the top of funnel, right? That is feeding into your enterprise ABM where you're going like a lot more deeper and then personalizing. Do you still have tiers in, in that or you don't? Or it goes, gets into that one-to-one -one or one-to-few bucket? No tiers in enterprise ABM. It's just one-to-one or one to few and one to few meaning 25 accounts or less in the cluster and 25 is pretty high. You'll usually see like a 10 yeah. to 15 because you know they're getting full personalization. You want to make sure that you're maximizing impact on the very right accounts in that one to few segmentation. Hmm. And so right. a re another really interesting thing that we're seeing in the market as well is enterprise ABM for these massive organizations or even midsize organizations has almost acted as a Trojan horse to bring in growth ABM. And why this is occurring is once you start building your ABM dashboard, highlighting account-based attribution, your sales and marketing, and even customer success teams are unified in a way that they've never been in a traditional demand or lead gen motion when they're running this enterprise ABM. And they're seeing immense success with not only being unified, but also with the personalized tactics that customers are demanding today. It's personalization was a hot topic as in this is something really new and, and cool, but now it's just demanded. If you don't have personalization, you're you're just not doing it in Correct. the best format. And so it acted as that Trojan horse because once these go-to-market teams were seeing how effective and how great enterprise ABM was, the leadership teams are all coming out of their offsites if you know if it's for 2024 planning or even historically and they were saying how do we scale this across more accounts and then they'll mm. implement growth abm and mm. eventually end up with that holistic account based go to market right i think it makes sense i think the moment you shift to abm i think that drives a natural alignment right you're not talking about lead a particular contact that you, you you touched, but you go and then say this is an account that I influenced and this is how they have moved. This is hot. You should 
take and then pursue it, right? And I think the more, so when that happens, and I think there's an alignment from maybe success or sales, depending on what type of um, account that is, right? Very interesting. Uh, just switching back uh, or revisiting growth ABM, right? So the three tiers that you talked about, right? Uh, so you, you were saying that this is a framework that is applicable for smaller com companies, right? So if you have like thousands of uh, potential accounts in your TAM, you, you filter it through your ICP criteria and you come and sort of divide into three parts. What are, what are some ideal numbers based on your experience that tier one, tier two, and tier three should have? And what are the, also the tactics that goes into uh, pursuing these accounts, which are part of one, two, and three. So the numbers of accounts, it totally depends on your how many resources you have at your disposal, how many ABM practitioners you have on your team, because the the core fundamental thing that you want with Growth ABM is you want to be able to support your tier one in it in that vip type blanking on the word but you you want to be able to support your tier one accounts in the greatest possible manner and so mm. that means you want a number that is it, it's typically smaller and the reason for that is you want to be able to effectively personalize so if you're let's say you're covering a thousand accounts and you split it up with 200 accounts in your tier one are you really resourced to be able to personalize for 200 accounts? And personalization is not just adding the account name to the top of a landing page or the account name in an outreach email sequence. It is really looking at what are the imperatives going on within this account going through the 10Ks in the investor relations, any relevant news and compiling all of that with any sales insights from their initial conversations so that you're speaking directly to the pains and the challenges that the business unit or the buying group is working to solve. And so when it comes to the number of accounts, tier one, you need to be able to do that. So if you have a massive ABM team and you're able to support it, put as many accounts as you can, uh, given that support ability but if you're one abm practitioner which my my guess is if you're running growth abm that is probably the case in a smaller organization right. make sure that you have enough that you're actually able to cover with your resources and resources is also your cross-functional ecosystem so your content marketer your product marketer uh, etc can they help support it as well and then the same goes for tier two as where you want to be able to have a number of accounts in there that given your resources, you can l lightly personalize. I mean, you still want to have some depth in there. It's not tier three where tier three is very much that scaled approach, but right. you want to have a number that will make sense based off of what you have. So you can still give those accounts some love and tactic examples across the three tiers for tier one the greatest example that i use every time is it's higher budget type activities and so for example if you were to do an executive dinner 
And it was in a city where you have a great majority of your tier one accounts. That is where you're going to prioritize, right? It's, it's VIP. It's where you're placing more of your go-to-market resources. Those tier one accounts should be getting that. Tier two would be, let's say you have a piece of content uh, taken an ebook, for example, or you built a custom landing page. That custom landing page would have modular sections that you can personalize for the account. But the difference would be in a tier one, your personalization is really, really uh, strong. So if you were going after an account like a TJ Maxx or a Macy's, maybe you'd have you know custom graphics or whatnot that is specific to a department store like a Macy's. As we're in a tier two, you wouldn't have custom graphics or you wouldn't have anything that is that personalized. It would just include maybe the copy is different, specific on the accounts, uh, challenges and pain points and how you can help to solve them. And then even carrying this landing page example over to tier three, tier three would be very scaled. So maybe it is, you know, adding in very, very light personalization where applicable. So it, it this would be more of that, you know, account name. And then depending on the account segmentation, let's say by industry or by pain point that the account is most likely to have that let's say you found this through intent data, then your landing page would be surfaced to the, that account based off of that segmentation or, or, or whatnot. So it's very much doing it in a scaled manner versus mm. the deeper levels of personalization and the deeper levels of how much budget resource you're putting behind the tactic that a tier one or a tier two would have. Got it. So again, sticking back to uh, sticking with that question. So in the example that you took thousand accounts, right? So ideally, right? So somebody who's just getting started, right? Uh, what have you seen, right? So the distribution, let's say one to two uh, ABM marketer or ABMR, right? Uh, is what the from the resource perspective that is available. So what would be the construct of these three tiers? In terms of numbers or percentages? Let's say if you have one to two marketers, I would realistically put maybe 25 to 50 accounts within your tier one. And then within your tier two, I'd have 150 to 250. And then tier three is the remaining. And okay. the, the reasoning behind this is because tier three is scaled. So it's not like the forgotten accounts, but it is, these are the accounts that we are not able to put in the amount of resource and to truly drive that personalization. And we don't want to put in the budget aspect from our go-to-market because based off of our insights and based off of our go-to-market strategy, they aren't the top, top priority to drive business. And that's why there's such a greater amount falling in that tier three. But then you just want to make sure that your tier one is large 
enough that you're able to truly drive that personalization and it will be effective for, you know, those higher budget tactics. So that, that is an example. Again, it completely depends on what your organization can do. Um, another example was, let's say you have 350 accounts. Uh, you'd put in uh, 25 in your tier one, about 50 in your tier two, and then the remaining in tier three. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, what's the role of intent? Right. I'm talking about third party intent, second party intent, first party intent. Right. And does that affect any moment? Let's say there is a, a certain account that you classified as a as a tier three account. Right. So you're getting insights from third party providers saying that, OK, they might be in market. You're validating, let's say, from a G2 or other sources that they are actually actively researching. And based on your outreaches, et cetera, they're also visiting your website and you're able to track, right? So that particular account, um, let's say it's based on all these activities, right? So you have a fair confidence that they seem to be in market, there's a demand. What would you do with that account? It can fluctuate throughout the different tiers. And intent is such a interesting topic. I think that we're just starting to hit intent maturity. And the difference is people are seeing a lot of false positives with third party. It is just surfacing enough engagement insights for account prioritization. And that is really where it it falls off after this regard and first party intent has been the gold standard for leveraging intent. It's who, how can we de-anonymize who's coming to our webpage, who's going on what product page, and then map that back to the different messaging and tactics that we're using. But intent is almost, it's one tool. It's not that end all be all or that one specific thing that will completely dictate where the accounts fall within the tiers. But it is something that if you're seeing a lot of first party intent from one account, you're seeing that correlated with a lot of third party intent and you're seeing engagement through maybe direct or indirect signals within your systems that could be a great indicator where if there's an account that's a tier three, maybe you're saying this might be right and this timing might be the best to bump them up to a tier two. Hmm. They don't go to tier one. Tier one is like high revenue uh, and must win sort of an account, right? T- in order to be a tier one, you, ha- you have to be high ACV. You have to be the go-to-market priority because you're pushing more resources into these accounts throughout the year. So that's, it's, it it can, it will, it will most likely fluctuate, but it's Mm. not, you're not going to see these massive shifts in accounts with your tier ones. And that's not to say that a tier three Mm. couldn't move up to tier one based off of market conditions, or maybe there's an account that is right to move up, but your tier one accounts Mm. are going to be pretty solid hmm. right so let's say an account 
right, matures and then you're able to create a deal opportunity, right? So what happens? Are you classifying? Are you going to have a subclassification for those accounts? Because essentially once the uh, deal is created or an opportunity is created, uh, essentially what you're going to do is to provide some coverage, air cover, right? You're trying to help sales close faster, right? So does the strategy change? Because you're going from, let's say, an acquisition to a acceleration kind of a, a motion, right? So what happens in those situations? Yeah, even on even on the tiered approaches, I mean, your ultimate goal is to bring as many accounts throughout that motion as you possibly can. So if an account, let's say a tier one account, just opened up an opportunity, you're still going to support them through their their life cycle it's not a you know oh you've got this opportunity here you go sales good luck your abm support just concluded it is how can we continue to help accelerate this deal throughout the process now and the attribution in which you're measuring success supports this and the reason why i bring this up is because in the traditional lead gen demand gen models this would be the scenario where you maybe SQL'd and then created that opportunity and then marketing passes it over to sales and says, hey, sales, you know, good luck. Go go close this account in that conveyor belt style fashion. But the way in which we look at it and where the top ABM programs are finding success is looking at contact engagement. So over the past 90 days, has a contact had a meaningful interaction with your go-to-market team? That's spanning across marketing, customer success, and sales. So it could be they opened a webinar from your webpage and they rewatched that, or they responded to a sales email for a couple examples. So what you're looking at is overall contact engagement within the account. So from that holistic standpoint how many how many contacts are engaging what are they engaging with but the most important piece and this all ties back to how you're helping these accounts go from that initial opportunity all the way through the close is you're partnering with the sales team to identify who the contacts are within the buying group and you're tagging those contacts within your CRM and measuring the specific engagement levels of the buying group. And you're also looking at what the buying group is engaging with. So instead of having an MQL, SQL motion where it's just you know going through this, not, this linear journey of which I think everybody agrees that the buying process is not linear in that capacity, what you're working to do now is partnering as a go-to-market team to drive engagement with not just an account overall, but drive mm-hmm. engagement within the right contacts. So you're also partnering to identify and tag who those contacts are. And the really cool piece about this is when an account maybe starts in the beginning of its journey with you and you're still in that demand creation phase, you'll see engagement you know, slow with maybe a couple contacts who you think are in the buying group or 
maybe maybe it's like two. And then as that account progresses throughout the sales cycle, you're going to see the number of buying group contacts increase. You're also going to see engagement within the overall account increase. And then more specifically and more importantly, you're going to see engagement with that buying group increase. So it could look like 30% at the beginning in terms of how many buying group contacts are engaged. And then when you're in that legal stage or once you've closed that opportunity, you're seeing 90, 95% engagement with that buying group. And so watching the engagement levels, watching what they're engaging with is really critical. And another component is making sure that you're not losing engagement out of contacts in the buying group. And if you have the capacity and are able to take it even a step further, you can stakeholder map the buying group and you're able to effectively say, here are here are the champions, here are the detractors that we need to turn into, into people who are going to love and appreciate what our product and solutions can bring. But it's again, it's that buying group, which is so critical. And a lot of organizations are just looking at MQAs or marketing qualified accounts, which is just surfacing up accounts that have high overall engagement. And then they're passing it over to sales. But where they're missing is identifying and tagging and tracking engagement of the contacts who really matter which are the ones mm. in the buying group? Right. Makes sense. Excellent points. Um, just wanted to talk a little bit about the tactical stuffs, right? So have you seen, like, especially smaller companies starting with ARPM programs, doing this, this um, three-tiered approach in tandem? Or do you start with tier three and then based on some engagements, etc., do you progress? And that's my first part of the question. The second is, like, how do you uh, structure your teams? Do you have specialists who are looking after tier one accounts and tier two accounts and tier three accounts and also another set of people or a person uh, helping in and, and really working closely with sales in, in accelerating a, an opportunity or a deal that was created? Yeah. And so I can give you an example of an organization who has done a really great job with this. They have one ABM practitioner and what they've done is instead of starting with tier three and then working their way that way, what they did was they actually took their complete target account universe and tiered the accounts from day one. And what they're doing and this is definitely what, what I would recommend as well, but they're testing and building for their tier one accounts and the different messaging that's resonating or the different tactics that are working really well, they're then scaling across tier two and tier three. So it's almost leveraging your resources to build those hyper-personalized assets and do it really, really effectively and also test within tier one. And then all of the learnings they're just carrying out through tier two and tier three. So mm-hmm. it's a really great way to you know, find out what's working and then scale it. Mm-hmm. And to, to the second point of your question, the team structure, 
my guess is if you're a smaller organization, you might even be a demand gen marketer who has been tasked from your boss to, hey, go, go, you know, test this ABM style program. It's either going to be that capacity or you'll yeah. be a solo ABM manager brought on to run your first initial ABM program within this company. And mm -hmm. running yeah. a growth ABM strategy is most likely going to be where you start because of the fact that you're able to have that increased coverage from an account standpoint. So you're not putting all of your eggs within the enterprise ABM basket. But that's n also not, not to say that you can't start out with enterprise ABM because if you were able to, and, and it makes sense from an ACV standpoint to put all of your eggs more in that enterprise ABM basket, I would run a one to few. So you're not, you know, running a couple one to ones because that can be a bit challenging, especially with an ABM pilot, but mm. you definitely still run enterprise ABM if it makes sense. Okay. So sticking to growth ABM and tier one, and you said this is an idle sort of a start for anybody, right? So starting with 25 accounts at max, right? And these are must-win accounts, right? Um, a lot of people see that as a risk, right? So I'm putting all my eggs onto these 25 accounts. Could be a great fit, but I'm used to seeing some kind of a conversion motion, right? So you're doing my typical demand gen programs and now we're we starting with this pilot and I've like picked 25 accounts, right? Uh, it's, while there is some kind of a strategic fit and all of that, it's still random, right? So there is no, no other signals that you're using except to say that, okay, these are accounts that, I, that eventually I wanted to convert, right? So how should people approach this and how should they mitigate? Should they factor I don't know. Uh, yeah, I'll just cut the question. So how should they approach? Yeah. And so with this, sorry, just to, just to clarify, is this a enterprise ABM one to few motion with the 25 accounts or less, or is this growth ABM like that? This is one, this is growth ABM in tier one, right? So there again, you suggested a limited set of accounts, right? So where you sort of providing that, uh, white glove kind of service, like a lot of personalization and things like that, right? So, and the, the question can actually apply for uh, for both the segments, but I'll, I'll stick with growth ABM, right? So these are tier one accounts, hand-selected set of accounts that you're you're trying to like really personalize and then do this, right? And without, let's say, uh, layering something like an intent or, or other signals, you run at a risk of not closing any of these accounts because they, maybe there's no demand within that account. Totally. And one of the biggest things in areas, even where ABM practitioners, what they're not doing when they're building out these, let's say 25 accounts for tier one, is they'll just go to the sales team and say, hey, sales team, who, who should we have in here? Who are the most important accounts that you all want? And that right. is definitely not the way we would recommend going about it before having that conversation with sales 
it is on you as the ABMer to do your homework and create the best possible data-backed target account list that you possibly can. And so running through a couple different ways that you can look at this, one is a revenue assessment. So where are the different uh, industries that are crushing it when it comes to, you know, net new, or maybe it is uh, cross-sell, upsell? Where are you seeing the revenue? What makes sense in that regard? Uh, you want to look at what your go-to-market has in terms of prioritization. What are the accounts, if they, have our, if they already have it segmented, what are the accounts that are already getting the most strategic uh, the the most strategic resource you also want to look at engagement who has the who has a high number of mqls or hasn't been engaging with a lot of your content currently uh, intent again is another piece i would really focus in on first party intent uh, and then you know firmographic data as well and if you're running it or have the ability to look into what account exec or what account executives might have the greatest appetite to be a good partner with you for this ABM program, that's another thing that you'll want to consider. But take all of those different factors and build a first pass at those 25 accounts using that data. And what you'll be doing is coming to that conversation with sales saying, hey, sales, we ran all of this analysis. We know to a degree we're not the, we're not the experts like you are, but we know to a degree what's going on in these accounts. We've put in the work. This is our first pass. How does this look to you and to what you're seeing and feeling within your conversations? And when you start the program and build the target account list in that regard, that's yeah. when you're going to find success. So you, it has to be a data-driven exercise. And you're not only going to find more success with the accounts that you're putting your resources into, but you're going to have so much more respect from the sales side because they're not just seeing you as someone who's coming and saying, hey, just toss over some accounts, you're actually showing how you are putting in the work as well and that this is a partnership, not just marketing done for these specific accounts. Mm. Makes sense. Fantastic. So this is awesome. Uh, I think we can continue talking about these frameworks, the, the applications and things like that maybe for some other day or be mindful of the time that we uh, schedule for this call Davis this has been a super uh, exciting conversation around the frameworks the overall ABM approach and things like that thank you for uh, taking time and then talk to, talking to me this morning and uh, if you have any final parting thoughts please share this was awesome thank you so much for having me on this is a lot of fun Absolutely. Absolutely, Davis. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think we will link the LinkedIn profile of yours and, and projects to companies or people want to talk to you so they have that report with you. Uh, Davis, thanks so much.